Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. If you are uh, using a pew Bible this morning, you'd want to open it up to page 1125 to find Romans chapter 1. Let me just begin uh, reading beginning at verse 18 of Romans chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about them is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world is invisible attributes His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, birds, four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, that their bodies might be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men, committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, Inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. That is a long and dark commentary on the human soul. It speaks of the degeneration of the human race. The deep, dark descent of man. And as we have been examining this passage together over the last few weeks, we have noted that this deep, dark descent manifests itself really in four specific areas. We noted that it begins intellectually, with the intellectual fall of man 
spoken of in verse 21. It begins there by not thinking rightly about the Creator. By refusing the witness of creation to Him and His glory. And then it follows with the spiritual decline of man. For when you turn your back on the reality of the universe, when you refuse your Creator being inherently a spiritual being, you're forced to substitute the creation for the Creator. And indeed, that's what happens in verses 22 and 23, the spiritual fall. We become idolaters. Paul here is laying out in this section, 18-32, through 32, the fall of the heathen nations, the fall of pagan humanity, but it also speaks of the fall within every single one of our hearts. For our hearts are idle factories, busily churning out cheap substitutes for our Creator. Seeking our spiritual fulfillment in the creation rather than acknowledging the Creator. The intellectual fall, the spiritual fall, leads to the sexual fall of man. Verses 24 to 27. Where when you refuse God, you also end up refusing His ordained plan for human sexuality. And all kinds of debauchery follows. It finishes in verses 28 through 32 with the social fall of man. What is the source of social evil? Where comes the injustices of mankind? Evil one towards another? Where does it all come from? It comes from a heart. It is hard to God. This is the destruction of humanity. And Paul meticulously lays this out so that there might be none who could stand and boast and say they do not need a Redeemer. He pulls the rug, if you will, out from underneath all humanity and says you have no righteousness. There is nothing inherent in you that would allow you to stand before your holy Creator. You are worthy of His wrath. But there is hope. The hope is in Christ. The reason for Jesus Christ to come to earth as a man, the reason for the incarnation, the reason for the crucifixion, the reason for the resurrection lies here in the depravity of the human heart. The better look we get at who we really are, the more willing we are to look into the mirror of the Word of God and unflinchingly see ourselves for who we really are, the more we will understand our desperate need for Christ. And the more our love for Him will grow, the greater will be our real and true worship. I don't like this passage of Scripture. It's not my desire to preach through it. Because it's so black and so ugly. And so critical and necessary. So as we continue through, and we've got a few more weeks to go, and then Paul will turn to the religious man in chapter 2 and continue to let the hammer blows fall, the indictment build, 
until all of us, every single one of us, stand under the full condemnation of a holy God. And it's from that place that we will look up and cry out, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. We're going to look this morning at the sin of homosexuality. Verses 26 and 27. The second part of this third descent of man. I'll read you a quote by a man by the name of Ed Welsh, written in 1998, almost a decade ago. Listen. He says, and I quote, homosexuality is the hot issue in the church and society. Even more than abortion, it will confront the church throughout this generation. Political sanctions will be imposed on institutions that refuse to hire homosexuals. Homosexuals will probably have their place at the table with civil recognition of same-sex marriages. Under the heading of pluralism, all forms of sexual expression will be considered equally valid. Church leaders will continue to be outed. More denominations will revise their exegesis of biblical passages to allow for homosexual relationships. And people who otherwise take the Bible seriously will leave churches that call homosexuality sin. Certainly, throughout its history, the church has faced persecution and criticism from the world. But at no time has the church so routinely been denounced as evil for upholding what appear to be biblical principles. Clearly, the nature of the topic demands humility and careful thought. That is what I want to do with you this morning and again next week. Is to approach this topic with humility and with careful thought. And let the Word of God form and shape our opinions on this most difficult topic. Verse 26, Paul says, For this reason God gave them over. Just as God gave over the pagan world to heterosexual immorality in verses 24 and 25, and we explored that in some detail two weeks ago, It was an expression of his wrath, the text says. So here, Paul also delineates homosexuality as a direct result of God giving the pagan world over to the practice of their own idolatry. Homosexuality in the text here as a condition of humanity is an outpouring of the wrath of God because of the refusal of humanity to bow their knee before the One who created them. Paradidomai, we said, is the verb to give over. We spent a fair amount of time two weeks ago unpacking that verb. And what we said, we say again here, is that it has a judicial aspect to it. It is a judicial giving over. It is a judgment giving over. It is a giving over to wrath. The wrath mentioned in verse 18. 
the wrath of God revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. It is not so much the outpouring of divine displeasure we noted, but it is the removal of restraint. The wrath of God is the removal of the restraints that hold back the wickedness that is inherent in the human heart. And to allow it to begin to produce the noxious fruit that comes from the wicked seed. This whole section on the deep, dark descent has three and perhaps four exchanges that are spoken of here. Let me just point those out to you. Because what's going on here is a continual substitution. In verse 23, there is an exchange spoken of in the text. There is a substitution. The exchange of the glory of the immortal God for the image and the form of corruptible man Birds, animals, and bugs. There is an exchange that happens in verse 25. The exchange of the truth of God, that is His self-revelation through the creation for the lie, which is idolatry itself. There is a third exchange spoken of here in verse 26. That is the exchange of the natural function of human sexuality for that which is unnatural. Fallen humanity continues to take that which is true and substitute that which is false in every sphere of life. As they say, there's arguably a fourth exchange, although the word exchange is not used. That's down in verse 32. That fourth exchange, if you will, is the exchange of the ordinance of God that rebellion deserves death for the hearty approval of it all. At our core, we're wicked. We are wicked. We are fallen. We are deserving of condemnation. You cannot read this text and come to any other conclusion. This morning's text, verses 26 and 27, is really just a further illustration that Paul provides of the depth of the innate wickedness. In this case, it's the practice of the sin of homosexuality. Now, I can say that for most of you, you have not experienced the temptation towards this sin. In fact, I think I can safely say that many of you are repulsed by this sin. This manifestation of depravity, perhaps you're even sitting here thinking that somehow those that are caught up in this particular form of sin are somehow more depraved than you are. Somehow their hearts are more fallen than yours. Somehow they are more wicked than you. Somehow God's hatred of sin is greater than theirs than it is for yours. That somehow there's some kind of pecking order and that maybe you're not quite so far down. Nothing, nothing could be further 
from the truth. Nothing. The seed of sin in the heart that produces homosexual attraction is the same seed of sin that produces all the other various forms of sin outlined in this passage. All the way down to disobedience to parents. The noxious fruit produced from the seed of sin comes in all kinds of shapes and forms. But the wickedness, the wickedness is the same. Where does it come from? Where does it proceed from? Where does the abomination, and that's what I've said in your notes because that's what the Bible calls it, where does the abomination of homosexual sin come from? It proceeds out of the heart. It proceeds and flows from the heart. Jesus said in Mark 7, verses 21 and following, For it is from within, out of the heart of men, that proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, evil, slander, pride and foolishness. And that's just a representative list. You can lay right alongside it the list here in Romans 1. Or any other sin list you find in Scripture. It's all coming from the same place. It proceeds from within and it defiles the man, Jesus says. It comes from the inside comes from the inside. They all originate in the heart and they are all equally damning before God. I want to look at the sin of homosexuality with you this morning and I want to do it in an unflinching way. I want to let the Bible speak. I want to come back to the topic again next week. I want to talk about the whys and the hows. And I want to talk about what can you do to escape this evil snare. Paul uses four terms here, verses 26 and 27, to describe the sin of homosexuality. Four terms that he uses. I've written them down for you. But he begins by noting its occurrence among women. And I think I, it's important enough to stop and just comment on that. Verse 26, he says, For their women exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. Now, I can't splinter the pulpit over this, but I am of the strong conviction that the reason Paul speaks here of female homosexuals and lesbianism is because it is a statement of the fall of a culture. By nature, women are genuine or generally more sensitive. And I think Paul is pointing out the reality that when women fall into this sin, it's a sign that the culture is in serious, serious trouble. It's also important to note, as we said last time, Paul is speaking here about the fall of humanity in general. He is not speaking about the fall of an individual human. 
This is a statement upon, is an indictment of us all. We can make application from the text, but this is not a narrative of any one person's life. Okay? Four descriptions. Four descriptions. First, it is degrading. It is degrading. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. Literally, passions that bring dishonor. Exactly what those passions are, Paul will unpack in the rest of this verse and the next, verse 27. But he starts out and and he says that the practice of homosexual sex is degrading. It is a degrading practice. It dishonors your body and denies your personhood as created by God. This is a message that is in absolute, direct confrontation with the message of the pro-homosexual lobby that has been like a drumbeat sounding in this society for the last 40 years. But the biblical text is true. Let God be found true, although every man be found a liar. In 1948, the Kinsey Report was published. The research of Alfred Kinsey, which was at the time hailed as the most uh, or or became the most influential at the time, was hailed as as the most uh, detailed investigation of human sexuality that had been done. According to the Kinsey Report, as I say, published in 1948, 10% of the population were homosexual. But the Kinsey Report is based on fraudulent research. It is fraudulent. His sampling was not representative of the culture of the day. 26% of his sample were Known sex offenders. 25% were already imprisoned. Through the years, study after study has been done. We have been under the influence of the pro-homosexual propaganda machine now for a generation. The true figures are about 1% male and about a half percent female. Alfred Kinsey was a fraud. Alfred Kinsey practiced homosexual sin himself, as well as masochistic sex, which he would then film and show to others. The man was degraded himself. And thus he had an axe to grind. He had a point to prove. His research is a fraud. 1973, the American Psychiatric Association removed homosexuality from its list of psychiatric disorders and reclassified it as a condition much like left-handedness. It's little known that prior to that decision, a letter advocating the removal was mailed by influential psychiatrists to over 30,000 
APA members urging them to support the change. That, that fact, I shouldn't say, is little known. That's widely known. What is little known is that the letter was drafted and funded by the National Gay Task Force. It was a political propaganda move. Recent scientific studies purporting to demonstrate that homosexuality is genetically or biological in origin have been subject to exaggeration by pro-homosexual advocates. Next week we will talk in greater detail about those studies and what do they really mean. But the degrading nature of homosexuality can probably be best illustrated by reading to you an extended quotation from the book called Straight and Narrow. The illustration summarizes nearly 200 studies into the gay lifestyle conducted over the last 20 years by reputable scientists that virtually all had either positive or neutral attitudes towards homosexuality. That is, that they were, they were not some fundamentalist Christian group out to prove a point. Let me read this to you. Remember, this is, a, this is an illustration that pulls the research together. Quote, Suppose you were to move into a large house in San Francisco with a group of ten randomly selected homosexual men in their mid-thirties. The relational and physical health of the group would look like this. Four of the ten are currently in relationships, but only one of those is faithful to his partner and he will not be within a year. Four have never had a relationship that lasted more than a year, and only one has had a relationship that lasted more than three years. Six are having sex regularly with strangers, and the group averages almost two partners per person per month. Three of them occasionally take part in orgies. One is sadomasochistic. One prefers boys to men. Three of the men are currently alcoholics. Five have a history of alcohol abuse. Four have a history of drug abuse. Three currently smoke cigarettes. Five regularly use at least one illegal drug. And three are multiple drug users. Four have a history of acute depression. Three have seriously contemplated suicide. And two have attempted suicide. Eight have a history of sexually transmitted diseases. Eight currently carry infectious pathogens. Three currently suffer from digestive or urinary ailments caused by these pathogens. At least, at least three are HIV infected and one has AIDS. End quote. The idea that homosexuality is a gay lifestyle is a lie right out of the pit. It degrades an individual. It degrades you. Why? Because it is unnatural, it is shameful, and it is perverse. Verse 26. Unnatural. Parafusin in the Greek. Against nature. For their women exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. It is by this statement that Paul takes us to the very heart 
of the issue. The error of homosexuality is that it is an unnatural sexual relationship. It is contrary to the intentions of the Creator. God did not intend women to have sex with women nor men with men. James Montgomery Boyce writes, and I quote, A simple look at one's sexual apparatus should convince anyone that the practices of this kind are not normal. Close quote. It is unnatural. Even the terms that Paul uses here in 26 and 27 to frame his argument, it's designed to thrust us back into the early chapters of Genesis. To go back there and to to remember the truth of how God created the race. Paul doesn't use here the common words for women and men, gune and andre. He stresses here through a different set of Greek words that in many other places in the Scriptures are translated female and male to point to the creation account. Your text translates them women and men. I think a more literal and intentional, following the intention of the author is to translate them male and female. He's pointing back to the origin of the race. For example, when Jesus discusses divorce, Matthew 19, verse 4, he speaks of God's created order, referring back to Genesis 1:27, And he uses the same Greek words that Paul uses here in 26 and 27. The lei and aphantes, female and male. Paul in Galatians 3.28, when he's speaking of the gospel as, as available equally to men, women, slaves, free, Jew, Gentiles, he uses these same two Greek words. The gospel is available freely to males and females, Paul says. Again, emphasizing the polar opposites. Driving you back to the beginning. The creation of the race. It all goes back there. Paul's not talking about men and women in some sort of cultural heritage. He's making a creation argument. When he says that it is natural and unnatural, he is referring to that which was the intention of the Creator at the time He brought the race into existence. One way God displays His glory is through His creation. The pinnacle of that creation was Adam and Eve. God created and He called it good. God created and He called it good. God created and He called it good. Then on the sixth day, He said it is not good for man to be alone, right? I will make a helpmate suitable to him. And so from the side of Adam, He created Eve. He brought her to Him in the chapter 2 in the first wedding ceremony. Telling somebody the other day, it's, it's as if God the Father had Eve the bride on His arm and escorted her down the aisle to her waiting husband. He performed the first wedding ceremony and He brought them together. 
At the end of chapter 2, he says, it was very good. It is the creation of the man and the woman that is the crown of glory. It is only them who bear the image of God. It is them who display Him to the world unlike any other part of creation. The ability for us to reveal the glory of the Creator is a privilege that none others have. And part of that glorious display is the reality that humans were created with gender, with sexuality. It was not an afterthought. It is fundamental to who we are. That first couple was given a creation mandate. Right? To produce, to subdue, and to rule over. Genesis 1. But there was also an explicit command to unite sexually and bring forth children. Genesis 1.26 Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Beyond that, God designed the sex act. The uniting of this husband and wife, this male and female. He calls it one flesh. The two shall become one flesh. He places this within the covenant protection of marriage. It is the means by which the procreation portion of the mandate is to be carried out. Homosexual sex is unnatural because it rejects the created order. Instead, it forms its own distorted picture of reality in which the gender differences arising from creation are considered not foundational nor essential. That which could be bypassed, that which could be overlooked. That's the essence of rebellion. That is the essence of rebellion. It is the redefining of God's standards for human sexuality and providing a redefinition according to your own standards. That's the essence of rebellion and pride. Beloved, the sex drive is wholesome and good. It was given by God. It is God's way of providing both pleasure and progeny. But when it is inverted through homosexuality, it becomes an abomination that strikes directly at the creation 
of the race. Paul says that this abomination, this destruction, this degrading of the human soul is so powerful it creates a burning lust. Verse 27. In the same way also, in the same way as laid out in verse 26, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and they burned in their desire toward one another. There's a burning, there's a, there's a, a hot passion associated with this. First Corinthians 7 and in verse 9, Paul speaks of burning there. says that if a man or a woman cannot remain single, they are burning in sexual desire one to another, they are to marry. It's better to marry than to burn, he says. There is a passion. There's a hotness. There's a heat involved in human sexual passion. There's no question about it. But heterosexually, there is an outlet. There is a God-ordained means. There is a mechanism by which it can be righteously and lawfully satisfied. Marriage is commended as the outlet for that human passion. Nothing to be ashamed of. Nothing to be embarrassed of. It's been placed within us. It's part of who we are. God has wired it there. He's given us a means to satisfy it. But the burning of homosexual passion has no natural or legitimate outlet. Lust in that way, relieved in any fashion, is essentially and under all circumstances illegitimate. There is no God-ordained means of outlet. It's unnatural. Third, it's shameful. Shameful. Because it's unnatural, it's shameful. Translated here in the New American Standard as indecent, men committing indecent acts. The word can easily be translated and is in many other places as shameful. Shameful acts. I mean, our culture is rapidly seeking to chip away at the natural shame of non-God-sanctioned sex. Not just homosexual sex, but all forms of non-God-sanctioned sexual expression. Our society is, is determined to chip away at the shamefulness that, it, that accompanies those. But that shame is placed there by God. This is a consequence of the fall. You remember the garden, right? They were naked and they were not what? Ashamed. Because they were operating within the God-designed, God-approved framework by which the passions that He had placed within them could be legitimately fulfilled. But the moment they fell into sin, they ran out and covered themselves because of the shame of it all. Why should we wear clothing? Because it is shameful to run around 
unclothed. It is a shameful thing. There is still a sense of shame that accompanies those who participate in homosexual activity unless they are the most hardened practitioners. There is still a sense of shame. That sense of shame is, is the work of God within the very soul of a man or a woman crying out to them and telling them, don't do this. In the ancient Greco-Roman world, they had pretty much chipped away at the shame of homosexuality. It had become so eroded, it had become so common among the wealthy, that according to William Barclay in his commentary, he says 14 out of the first 15 Roman emperors were homosexuals. That enlightened society had so eroded God's standards that are hardwired within the creation that that's the debauchery into which they had fallen. It is a shameful thing. I think I have minutes in the bank somewhere. If not, you'll have to make me alone. It's perverse. Verse 27, it is perverse. Plane is in the Greek. The word is translated here, error, receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. This word, plane, is used many places in the New Testament, often to refer to the sins that are characteristic of unbelievers, those that are seriously have gone astray in both their thoughts and deeds. Ephesians 4.14, plane is transferred there, deceitful scheming, First Thess 2.3, it's translated error. Second Thess 2.11, a delusion. Jude 1.11, it refers to the error of Balaam, that is, his idolatry and fornication at Baal Peor, number 25. And Jude 1.13, it's translated wandering stars. It's translated a wandering, a wandering. That is, stars that are out of orbit. Stars that are not fulfilling their creative design are plané. They are wandering stars. The New International Version translates in Romans 1.27 plané as perversion. I think it's a good translation. I think it captures the idea. Error is too soft a word. Error is something that happens accidentally. It's too soft a word. It is a perversion. Just as stars out of place are a perversion of God's intention for them, so too homosexual sex is a perversion of God's intended purpose for our bodies. That's the connection. God governs His universe by both physical and moral laws. Just like when you're standing on the top of a stepladder, as happened to me a few years ago, and you want to step back and admire your work without first climbing down. You recognize that gravity is a reality in this universe that you cannot escape. Well, when we violate God's moral law, there are penalties that cannot be escaped. Receiving, verse 27, in their own persons the due, the necessary, another way to translate it, penalty of their perversion. 
What is the penalty that is received? What is it that it is spoken of that is hardwired into the universe as a consequence of this kind of activity? Well, contrary to the notions of some, it is not sexually transmitted diseases. It is not STDs. They were well known in the ancient world. They are well known today. But that is not the necessary or the just penalty for the perversity spoken of in 27. What is it? In context of Romans 1, it is the the unmooring, the releasing, the pulling back of the restraint of God and allowing a person to fall headlong into their perversion. It is the abandonment by God into the cesspool of unnatural vices and moral squalor. God is not mocked. Whatever a person sows, they will reap. We need some light. We need some light. In your handout, I've said Christ, our only hope. Christ, our only hope. If I let you walk out of here this morning without talking about this, I've left you in a state of condemnation. Let me lift you out. Why does Paul take the time to unveil all of this? It's because it demonstrates the blackness of the human heart. It is the blackness of the human heart. It is the wickedness and blackness of homosexuality. And the reason he does this is because it is only when we see the dreadful and helpless nature of our own heart that we come to understand how desperately we need him. Jesus said, I didn't come to call the healthy, but the sick. Right? Healthy people don't go to doctors. Only the sick. Jesus also said, he who is forgiven much, forgives much. He who is forgiven little, forgives little. It is when you understand the depth of your own heart. Not when you look at someone else's, your neighbor's heart. It's when you look at your own heart and you see the reality of who you are that you come to understand your condition in need of a Savior. Why does Paul point this out? He's pointing this out so that everyone could know that every person needs a Savior. Everybody is depraved. Dead in their sin and trespasses. Desperately in need of a Redeemer. Residing under the wrath of their own Creator. Let me say this as clearly as I can. Homosexuality is a sin. It is a sin. And those who practice it will not enter the kingdom of God. Do not be mistaken, beloved. They will not. If you were trapped in this sin today, I need to tell you there's hope. There's hope in Christ. 
He can deliver you. Like He delivered me from the lust and sin of my own heart. He will forgive you. He will cleanse you. His Spirit will reside within you and by the power of that indwelling Spirit, He will give you the strength to overcome your bondage to sin. There is hope in Christ. If you are a follower of Christ, but you are still struggling with homosexual temptation, let me say two things to you. Number one, you are not a homosexual, you are a Christian. You are a Christian. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You have to war against the flesh. If you have trusted Christ as your Savior, you are a Christian. Christ is your hope. Christ is your hope. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man, and God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Run! Run from this sin. Run from it. Christ is our hope. He is our hope. He's our only hope. Let me pray. Lord God. We so desperately need Christ. There's a wickedness of our own hearts. So powerful. So enticing. So alluring. Our Father, please, pour out Your grace upon us today. Every single one of us Be merciful to us, Lord God. Not because we deserve mercy. We do not. But we plead with You for Jesus' sake. May Your Spirit use His Word like a well-placed arrow piercing our heart, revealing what's within Cleansing us, healing us, drawing us to you. For your name's sake, amen.